What's the best South Florida airport to get you through the holidays? Why are so many South Floridians food insecure during the holidays? And is Univision going Trumpista? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll examine how our region's three major airports are likely to perform amid what's likely to be record holiday traffic in the skies. Which of them is likely to get you through TSA fastest and slowest? We'll also look at a more unsettling aspect of the holidays, the fact that a larger share of people here are experiencing food insecurity than the rest of the country. And we'll ask if the country's largest Spanish-language TV network is suddenly cozying up to Donald Trump. All this coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. And if you're traveling, I hope you're not experiencing anything like this scene from the classic Thanksgiving comedy, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. By the time the airline cancels this flight, which they will sooner or later, you'd have more of a chance to find a three-legged ballerina than you would a hotel room. You're saying I could be stuck in Wichita? I'm saying you are stuck in Wichita. Well, better to be stuck in nice, warm South Florida. The Federal Aviation Administration has forecast record airport traffic for this holiday, and it said the busiest air travel day this week would be Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. But we've still got a lot of flying to finish this weekend, and then comes the Christmas crunch in a few weeks. So we wanted to take a look at how South Florida's three major airports, Miami International, Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International, and Palm Beach International, might be expected to perform for holiday passengers between now and the new year. There are several ways to measure that, of course. One is how long it takes you to slog through airport security, the dreaded TSA lines. A new study on that facet of the airport experience isn't too flattering for Fort Lauderdale, for example. More on that later. Joining me now for a look at traveling the friendly South Florida skies is WLRN senior economics editor Tom Hudson, who is not stuck in Wichita or his native <laughs> Iowa. Tom, how are you? I am glad to be stuck in sunny South Florida. As I'm happy I. not to be in a TSA line <laughs> or waiting for a cup of coffee at one of the terminals. I can't blame you. Yeah. So I think it's Fair to say we're still seeing a strong post-pandemic passenger traffic surge at most of our airports, Definitely. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole revenge travel thing. Yep. That's especially true for the holidays because COVID kept us away from our loved ones for so long. Now, your data indicate that Miami International Airport, or MIA, and Palm Beach International, or PBI, are on track for record-setting passenger traffic in, in 2023. In fact, South Florida has helped lead the post-pandemic comeback for U.S. airports, especially MIA. Why is that? Yeah, definitely. Well, the revenge travel aspect in 2020, 2021, 2022, Florida being open, right? Uh, you know, kids were back in schools. So a lot of folks certainly tried to move here and did move here. But also you had just the general openness that was happening with the economy and restaurants and hotels hmm. and folks really wanted to come here. But then kind of sat into the Florida fatigue, right? Maybe too much Florida too soon. 
but that really hasn't panned out. We continue to see record-setting numbers this year, as you mentioned, at uh, Miami International and Palm Beach International. This year is going to be bigger than 2019, which before the pandemic was the right. record the year record of year. air yeah. travel here yeah. in South Florida. And there's also some good municipal bond news built into <laughs> all that, right? Especially for Miami-Dade County. Yeah, you know me. You can't be too far away from the financial markets and because the airports are enormous economic engines. Right. Yes, we get a lot of focus on the passengers, and rightfully so, but particularly at MIA, the cargo side of the business is the big engine that can and does in South Florida. And uh, Miami International, all these airports borrow a lot of money because it costs a lot of money to keep the runways in shape, yep. you know, the, the terminal, all the amenities, all these things. It is a global competition, and it takes a lot of money. These are publicly owned uh, assets, and so you go to the markets to borrow the money. And Miami International, for instance, uh, continues to see its bond rating has been increasing uh, over the course of uh, the last several years. And it's been able to pay down a little bit of debt, but you know, a, a higher bond rating means lower interest rates. So the cost of borrowing for Miami-Dade County taxpayers to invest in their airports becomes less. But as you said, this is also a good reminder of just how important generally these airports oh, are to our local economies in South Florida. More important than we realize. Yeah, they are enormous. I mean, yes, certainly the tourism aspect of it uh, and the convenience aspect of it. Because remember, South Florida, uh, unlike maybe Chicago, New York, Boston, Washington, which are a big mix of uh, hospitality travelers, of tourism, right. but also business, okay. right? I mean, certainly people do travel to South Florida on business, but it is primarily a hospitality tourism uh, passenger that's coming through. But Miami-Dade International is is uh, is an enormous trade partner, in, number one international cargo airport in the country. Uh, Miami International Airport actually has a trade surplus with the rest of the world. You know, for years and wow. years and years, we talk about trade deficits, trade mm -hmm. deficits, and the United States isn't a trade deficit, meaning that we import a lot more than we export. But at Miami International Airport, we actually export more than we import. But on the other hand, you say Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, or FLL, has not yet rebounded to its pre-COVID no. pandemic levels. Why? What's keeping FLL back? Well, I think a couple of things, perhaps. Uh, one could be ticket prices, right? But that is affecting all airports, and it doesn't seem to come into play for folks flying in and out of Miami or Palm Beach International. Uh, we do see year-over-year -year growth at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, but it's still about 5% below uh -huh. the pre-pandemic traffic record numbers we saw in 2019. Right. And so, you know, one of the pieces of that that helps explain it, uh, according to one of the Broward County Aviation spokeswomen, is airlines themselves. Airlines have experienced different yep. levels of recovery at Lauderdale. Um, and the two biggest airlines by market share are in a uh, drawn-out merger, uh, Spirit and JetBlue. Remember, mm -hmm. there's yeah. this corporate takeover, which the U.S. government is fighting in court, and so JetBlue has been pulling back operations from Fort Lauderdale. And speaking of the airlines themselves, I also saw just recently that Southwest Airlines yeah. says it's shifting its international routes from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando. What's what's all that about? Yeah, well, Southwest says Orlando is more centrally located. Apparently, Southwest just maybe discovered a map of Florida. I mean, yes, it is more centrally located, <laughs> yeah. certainly. Uh -huh. uh, there is that. Um, uh, but again, it's an international competition to be able to for the airlines to get passengers in and get them uh, processed smoothly and quickly 
through the airport. Southwest thinks it can do a a, a bigger international business out of Orlando, which, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the state of Florida, is the magnet for Florida travelers. So speaking of FLL and its issues, let's look at that study by the travel research firm Upgraded Points about the airport TSA experience there. It found that three of the worst U.S. airports for security line wait times during last year's holiday season were in Florida. And one of them was Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International, FLL. In fact, FLL's TSA lines were the sixth longest in the nation, according to that study. Not good. What do you think that reflects? I think it, so the airport itself will say the airport doesn't do security. It's the Transportation Security Administration. It's the right. federal agency. That's who does security. Remember, that came in. That agency was invented after 9-11. Used to be the airlines did airport security. Then the federal government came in to mm-hmm. do airline security. So right. Fort Lauderdale points to that uh, and says, listen, you know, lots of peak travel, lots of travelers. And just uh, a reflection of the overall demand that these airports experience, uh, certainly this time of year, the holidays, but really over the entire wintertime travel season. But yet Palm Beach International and Miami International's TSA wait times, according to this study, were at or better than the national average. Why do some airports, even if they're not responsible for it, why at some airports does this seem to be done right and at others maybe don't have a good not handle so much. on it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's supply and demand and management and the TSA. TSA is under constant scrutiny by Congress and others about how they're managing on the ground with these airports because the airports, the airlines, uh, and certainly the the taxpayers that help support the airports know that efficiency is number one. And when you're in a a competition battle, especially in South Florida, where travelers do kind of have three different airports to pick from, depending on where they're exactly going to go. I mean, I don't know about you, but occasionally I'll fly out of Fort Lauderdale, which is a much longer trip for me from my home because of price or convenience than Miami International. My son would, my son would, and daughter would often find better, you know, fares going into FLL and MIA. So I think it's management, it's supply and demand, it's really trying to manage those peak moments or sometimes hours that airports can experience because of travel. But Florida's airports in general do not come out well in these reports, do they? Another one, uh, new one by HubScore lists Orlando and Miami among the worst U.S. airports (laughs) to fly out of. Does that sound right to you? Uh, with all due respect, yes. Okay. I mean, I mean, I haven't flown in or out of Orlando, but I've flown yeah. plenty out of MIA. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not a great experience, I have to tell you. And and okay. for me personally, a lot of it is the it's the wait time. I mean. For my travel, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford a TSA pre, and I went yep. through that process, and that has been a game changer, I have to tell you. But not everybody can afford that mm-hmm. um, um, because it costs money to be able to go through that. But the wait times that come up in these surveys— Yeah, I just wanted to ask you— really are really suspicious, i got to yeah. tell okay. you, right? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the according to upgraded points, the average TSA time nationally is six minutes. The last time I was in any airport TSA line, it seemed more like <laughs> 60 minutes. So you and I have been talking for about 10 minutes. So imagine that average. So so two people have. So you've been able to go through two TSA lines in the amount of time that you and I have been speaking. Who experiences that? I don't know anybody who anecdotally could tell me that without a TSA pre-check, for instance. Right. So the the way that these numbers are computed, I had to ask uh, upgraded points about this. It's an average of all hours of operation of all checkpoints. Uh-huh. Okay. And so so there, you know, maybe it's not just Terminal D at uh, at MIA. Maybe it's right. not just the Southwest and not or the just JetBlue Friday terminal. evening. Exactly. As, as right, okay, yeah, right, yeah. right. So, you know, okay, maybe, but still, yeah. are the majority of people really experiencing a 6-minute or a 9-minute TSA wait time at these airports? Yeah, hardly. 
I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about South Florida's airports and navigating them during the holidays. Now, Tom, holiday airport traffic in South Florida is also very international. Lots of us going to see Abuela yep. in Bogota and lots of Gran coming to see us from Port-au-Prince. How do our airports stack up these days when it comes to immigration and customs? You you point out that a separate study by Upgraded Points gives Miami International the low grade on this one. Yeah, one of the longest wait times for international travelers passing through immigration yeah. and customs uh, during the holiday season. Uh, again, this is, uh, uh, you know, the marketplace here is international. Miami International sure. Airport, Fort Lauderdale, lots and lots of international traffic and, and a fair amount of PBI as well in Palm Beach. Uh, but these these wait times or these even some of the maximum wait times that international travelers are experiencing, both citizens who are coming back, American citizens and folks who are visiting from overseas. I mean, it can be an hour, an hour and a half in some cases. There's some investment in technology that's happened at, at the airports to try to speed that up, have folks download an app and get their mm -hmm. passport checked through an app and do facial recognition. So there are moments, and I've experienced this, where you don't actually see an immigration officer anymore. It's a kiosk, yeah. uh, and you can move in very quickly. But it is an area of focus for these airports because they know getting that right is going to help keep the international traffic here in South Florida, yeah, and this, not just because of geography. Th this, is, this has been a problem for MIA's reputation for, for years and years. So if you're like me, and you've got a lot of folks coming and going for the holidays, both domestic and international, you're constantly looking for this trick or that method for so-called <laughs> hacking the airport hassles. Yeah. What are some of your favorites? Oh, boy. Well, first of all, I'd have to say is, uh, you know, if you're traveling, don't drive, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, try to uh, bake a pie, cook a casserole, whatever kind of honorarium you need to offer somebody to give you a ride or take uh -huh. public transportation, which is really impossible in Palm Beach and Fort Lauderdale, more possible Right. In in Miami Dade County with uh, with the train and then getting on the uh, the kind of the the tram so to speak that goes mm -hmm. to the airport. That's the first thing. I think the second thing, if you, one can afford it, TSA pre again, it is a life changer, no doubt mm -hmm. about it. Secondly, is not always go to that checkpoint that is closest to your gate because that checkpoint, particularly Miami, sometimes in Lauderdale, uh, those are where the popular gates are that a lot of the flights are coming uh, right. out of, okay. right? And those yeah. are the, can be sometimes the longest lines. Now at MIA, um, once you're in security, you can travel generally through right. uh, across terminals. You can't always do that in all the other airports. So you wanna just kind of check around and see maybe there's a wait time at a checkpoint that still gets you access to your gate, but may not be the one that's ah, immediately okay. close. So if you've got a flight going out of D, maybe it's smart to go through security over in Could H be. or G or Could J. Be. Yeah. Also, I'll yeah. say for both Lauderdale and Miami, beware of the cruise ship schedule. Yeah. Right? Because those cruise ships will dump thousands of passengers at Port Miami or Port Everglades. Some spend the night and then fly out the next day. And so those flights that next morning... Boy, security can be uh, a real uh, a, a real challenge and a real case for patients sometimes. Yes, yeah. and and parking also has uh, gotten <laughs> well fairly costly. Fairly at, costly at a place like MIA. Yeah, right? it can be costly, and even off street, not off street parking, but uh, off site parking mm -hmm. um, can also fill up pretty quickly because you know we're expecting in Miami record setting holiday travel season here yeah uh fort lauderdale is going to be slightly below that palm beach is expecting you know hundreds of thousands of passengers as well so those spaces get 
get eaten up pretty quickly. And you've also got all those people trying to like game the system, yeah. like trying to create their own uh, cell phone lots yeah. on the on, <laughs> right, on the side, right. and That's you're right. constantly seeing so, police, you know, try hey hey buddy move it. So yes. so so on the pickup, right? The yeah. hack that that it's not very familiar, right? But mm-hmm. picking somebody up from the departures area uh-huh. as opposed to the arrivals area. Now, if you think about it right, yeah. in the arrivals area, folks have to slow down. You got to find somebody. You got to open up the trunk. It just takes longer versus the departures. You yep. slow down, you pop out of the car. So if you're picking somebody up from the departures, it tends to be maybe slightly a little bit easier. Okay. <laughs> good good <laughs> tips can't, all. can't guarantee it, though. I will be trying them, yeah, believe good me. luck. And since this is sexy South Florida, we also have to mention the fashionista aesthetics of our airports. <laughs> What's this about MIA, for example, getting a reputation for, quote, Banana Republic chic? If you travel out of the main terminal at Miami International Airport, which is the American Airlines terminal, which uh-huh. is the far and beyond the market share leader at Miami International, it is modern, it's upgraded, uh, you know, beautiful, gleaming hallways and modern amenities. I mean, the SkyTrain still doesn't work, though, so you yeah. have to walk that long way if you're going to Gate 60. Or... Still not going to be working for the Christmas no, holidays? Still not. Okay. They're going right. to have a trolley running or a tram running, but the train itself is not running. Right. Good to but know. But the other terminals, they are uh, shabby chic, to put it best. Uh, uh-huh. They have not gotten any kind of TLC in a good long time. And as as the airport and the county is investing in the airport, it knows this. It needs to keep some of these smaller airlines that aren't so dominant like American Airlines, these smaller right. airlines still continuing to to uh, uh, service Miami because that helps competition, which of course helps ticket prices, which of course helps feed more passengers. That's, 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 that's intriguing, it really is. And, and you mentioned that MIA Finally here, Tom, quite possibly has the largest collection of coin payphones still hanging on its walls, right? I think the last person to use one of those was Sonny Crockett calling Tubbs to let him know that Calderon's plane had just landed yeah. on Miami Vice, right? I think so. Why are yeah. they still there? I don't know, but I'm fascinated. My my photo album and my phone is filled with these uh, payphones that are populated all around Miami International Airport, uh, in, in even in the modern terminal, right? The terminals that have been modernized, terminal D, but in the older ones, and they're po- they're pods of four, five, six phones. Now some of them have been retrofitted, where the phones themselves have been taken out, and now they're they're essentially power cords, so that you can recharge your right. mobile phone or mobile devices. But I got to tell you, I think Miami International Airport has a museum that's in what the I was waiting thinking. here yeah. of the American payphone. Uh huh. No, yeah. that, that's exactly what I was thinking. Is that you know that's why I mentioned Miami Vice. This is all sort of a nostalgia. Oh thing, yeah, you know? it's there, and I've got the photographic evidence to prove it, Tim. Okay. (laughs) Show that to me after our segment here. Thanks. Tom Hudson is WLRN's senior economics editor. Happy holidays, sir. You too, sir. Still to come, too many South Floridians don't have enough food for the holidays. How can you help? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We were just talking about the difficulty of getting through our airports for the holidays, but there's a more dire holiday problem here, the difficulty of getting enough to eat. 
According to the U.S. Agriculture Department, the share of people in Florida facing food insecurity is higher than the share of the overall country facing hunger. And the problem is especially acute in South Florida. In Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade, and Monroe counties, more than 1.2 million people, almost a tenth of the population and 13 percent of children, aren't getting enough food during normal times of the year, let alone what we expect in order to make this time of the year a celebration. The inflation we've experienced in recent years is certainly a prime culprit, but so is the low-age economy our region has been stuck in for generations. Whatever the reason, food aid nonprofits here say there's an unprecedented need for South Floridians who have to step up and help make the holidays more food secure for those who have not. Joining me now to discuss the causes, effects, and remedies for this crisis is Paco Velez. He's president and CEO of the nonprofit Feeding South Florida, based in Pembroke Park. Paco, thanks for being with us. Ken, thank you so much for having us. For this Thanksgiving, Feeding South Florida led a drive called Share Food, Share Joy. You urged folks here to make donations specifically to help families share turkey and other Thanksgiving foodstuffs. How did that effort turn out? The effort, uh, the, our South Florida community has always been extremely responsive and extremely caring, uh, especially in times of, of disaster or times of emergency. And right now, during this economic crisis that our families find themselves in, um, our community is stepping up and not only coming out and volunteering, but also donating turkeys and, and donating much needed funds to help us put food on the table for so many families this holiday season. So by last Friday's deadline, you were able to collect what, what you had hoped. So, yes, we did meet the goal. We brought in over 8,000 turkeys, and we were able to distribute all the way through Wednesday afternoon. Wonderful. How much more urgent was an effort like this for your organization this year compared to Thanksgivings in past years? Well, these past years have been extremely uh, difficult for a lot of families and very unpredictable uh, for for families, for our communities, for us, for just really everyone. You take, um, you know, from 2017 on after Hurricane Irma, it's just been nonstop with government shutdowns and, and the pandemic and the economic crisis and so much going on in the world and so much going on in South Florida that our families are, are really uh, getting frustrated and not being able to find food and, and afford food. And so for us this year, it was extremely important for us to get food on the table for families this holiday to ensure that they were they had something and someone to celebrate. Was there more of a sense of urgency this year than in past years? For us and for our families, there there is. Um, it's just it almost seems like it's nonstop for our families, and there's not a not a whole lot of light at the end of the tunnel. So the urgency was there for us to help our families, and the urgency is is there for them to give them a bit of hope. Feeding South Florida, as, as I mentioned, estimates more than 1.2 million people in our region are facing food insecurity, if not outright hunger. What do you point to as the main causes for this problem having gotten worse in recent years? I think you started to, to allude to some of them earlier, but what do you point to as the main culprits here? So the rising cost of of goods it's not just food that's going up it's it's pretty much everything and 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 uh it's just an interesting storm of of higher wages in certain industries and 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 higher costs in 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 other industries is creating a difficult situation for our families to live uh struggling to put a roof over the head putting uh fuel in their car just putting uh, uh 
cleaning goods in their in their cupboards. These are the things that are costing a lot more money when when you're paying ten dollars, fifteen dollars more a week on something. For a lot of people, that's not a lot, but for the families we serve, that's a heck of a lot of money. And 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 trying to figure out where they're going to make up that difference. That's where Feeding South Florida comes in to try to offset their budgets. Mm -hmm. So it's just really the cost of goods around, across the board for our families that's that's creating the struggle. What are the kinds of foods that are getting increasingly out of reach price wise for lower income families? I know, for example, produce like vegetables is often a problem. I would imagine that's even more acute now. It really depends on uh, the fruits and vegetables are 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 easier to come by and a little bit less expensive when when South Florida is in its uh, harvest season. Okay, good Once point. It's no longer in our harvest season, then they become out of reach for families. We have to import those from from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, and so those become increasingly difficult. Protein items are really the big one. Whole grains are also are also pretty pricey. Um, these are the things that that families end up having to to make a decision on whether they want to keep a roof over their head or fuel in their car, or utilities uh, flowing through their homes. It's difficult. As I mentioned earlier, organizations like yours rely on people who have to help the families that don't have. But these days, are we seeing even middle class families having trouble not only donating to groups like Feeding South Florida, but even making sure their own families? Are food secure, despite the fact that we would think at first glance that they certainly are. That's actually very interesting, and something that we've seen here at Feeding South Florida is is folks who ordinarily wouldn't need assistance, and they actually let us know they wouldn't need assistance, coming through our doors and 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 are a little embarrassed and and not knowing how to navigate the system, and and we try to help them as much as possible, just because it's becoming increasingly difficult to live in South Florida. Um, if you're making less than $60,000 a year, especially for a family of four. So we're seeing a lot more uh, upper, upper lower class or even middle class families coming to our doors. And the fact that those kinds of families are facing this kind of problem now, in years past, they might have been the kind of people who would donate to a group like yours. How has all this affected donations that organizations like yours receive these days? So for now, the donations uh, continue to come in. Um, we're not we're not as high as we were during the the, the pandemic. It's slowly tapered off, and and we're seeing the effects of the economy uh, taking the toll on on some of the donations that we're bringing in as folks start uh, getting a little bit concerned about about uh, their financials. Um, right. But we are seeing less and less donations come in. But we're we're the the bigger thing is really the 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 fear of, or concern. As as this economy starts to swallow up some of our some of our middle class. Right. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the acute food insecurity crisis so many South Floridians are experiencing during the holidays and how we can help. I'm talking with Paco Velez, who heads the nonprofit Feeding South Florida. Paco, what are the most acute effects of the growing food insecurity in South Florida organizations like yours are seeing? I, I know you mentioned recently that more households here are skipping meals and that ad adults are often going without food so their kids can eat, which would only seem to worsen the cycle since that affects how well an adult can perform in his or her job and provide for a family, right? Not only does it affect how they perform at their job, but it also affects the uh, the time that they're off of their job. As they continue to get um, weaker or or sick, uh, they're going to spend more days at home or in the hospital and not 
working. So it affects businesses, it affects the household, it affects the lines at the at the emergency room, uh, which is where a lot of our families tend to go for for healthcare. Right. So it's really a a something that affects our entire community with with one little issue, and that's a lack of food on the table, especially healthy food. Yeah. What are some of the food aid innovations that charities like Feeding South Florida are pursuing these days? I, I know, for example, that helping restaurants avoid throwing out perfectly good food and instead donating it is a trend that's been picking up here. My own children would help pick up leftover food at restaurants as part of their high school community service. Are approaches like that helping to shore up food aid supplies these days? So there are two sides of, 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 of this. Uh, the first side is is getting the food in from those who have it onto the table of those who need it. And we do have this uh, this app called Meal Connect, and that was put together through General Mills, Walmart, and Google. And it allows us to almost like a ride share, but for food, to rescue food from from those banquet facilities, restaurants, and and hotels that, that have extra food, food right. available. Re- rescue donate. it from being wasted, right? Correct. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, and then on the other side, it's it's families. It's making sure families not only have the food, but what else can we help? And so we do have Oasis, which is a great uh, online system that allows us to capture information to better understand who's in the household and how we can help them, whether they're children, older adults, veterans, so we can provide or, or help refer those individuals to additional help so we can help the entire household with a lot of different services, not just with food but we first have to stabilize them with food. Mm-hmm. No, those those are interesting innovations. How is food insecurity leading to other poverty-related problems like homelessness? I mean, I mean, feeding a family obviously has to be a priority, if not the priority. So taking care of that need can often leave households with less resources for things like rent or a mortgage, correct? Yes, sir. So we we actually provide a, as much food as we can, as much food as the family needs to alleviate some of that budget so they can keep a roof over their head, so they can keep fuel in their car to get to and from work. We want to make sure that food is not going to be an issue for our families. And that way they can they can uh, they can spend the rest of their budget on on other needs. Uh, food we can easily bring in. We can easily get it out to families. Um, so that's what we focus on. And Paco, looking ahead, we still have the Christmas holiday to deal with, obviously. And am I right in suggesting um, that that can make the food insecurity struggle even more complicated because families are also trying to find the resources for things like gifts and toys? I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, is, is the month ahead perhaps an even more urgent time for folks in South Florida to step up and help make food insecurity less of a problem for families to wrestle with? Well, parents, we've seen parents want to do anything and everything for their children. Um, We talked earlier about how how families or parents uh, go without just so their children can have food every night and the parents will have food every other night just and ration ration the food for themselves. Same thing goes for the holidays and birthdays. They want to make sure that their children, sorry, they want to make sure that their children grow up not knowing that they're in, that they're struggling with food. They want their children to grow up experiencing the holidays, experiencing family, friends, fellowship. And so they they want to shelter their their kids as much as possible. So this is this becomes extraordinarily difficult for our families 
when they're trying to balance food and and providing a, a great holiday season for their children. What then are some of the efforts feeding South Florida, for example, has lined up for December in, in, in the wake of the Thanksgiving as we move toward Christmas? What, what are some of the efforts we can expect from groups like yours at this point? Feeding South Florida is working with some of the schools across the four-county area to ensure that we're providing um, distributions, uh, holiday distributions to to families who we know are going to struggle over the holiday break. This is a big time for our families when they children are home, and and we've we've heard from children directly that they don't want to take this break because they won't have enough food on the table and they want to make sure that they have food. And so this is where we come in. We work with the schools to better understand the households and, and provide food so they have something to eat over that holiday break. And hopefully our families can provide um, that uh, uh, a holiday meal and a good holiday for, for their children. Finally then, Paco, what do you... What would you like to see South Floridians who do have the resources, in what most important ways would you like to see them step up as we start approaching the Christmas and New Year's season now? Honestly, South Florida has been amazing. They always, they're always amazing. And for those who have the resources to get involved, I really encourage folks to, to get involved in whatever nonprofit or whatever, whatever their passion is, whether it's the arts, whether it's mental health, whether it's food or housing. It's really about uh, leaving this world and leaving South Florida a better place than, than, than how you found it. Uh, many, many folks are not from South Florida. This is considered a second, sometimes even third home. Right. It's a very, very but transient we, community. And sometimes it's hard to get people committed uh, in that in that kind of way to the to the community uh, in that regard. Right. It really is. And that's where where hopefully growing up the way I grew up in, in Texas, I'm not from here either. I'm a transplant from Texas. I've been here almost 12 years. And and but I, I believe in leaving people and leaving places better than how I found them. And and that's what I ask our community to to continue to do, whether it's through Feeding South Florida or through any other uh, passion that they have within them. Paco Velez is the president and CEO of the nonprofit Feeding South Florida. Paco, thanks for talking with us and happy holidays. Thank you, Tim. Happy holidays to you and your, your team as well. Still to come, is the country's largest Spanish language TV network going Trumpista? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last week, the Washington Post published an article that sparked controversy, if not scandal, in the Latino community here and around the country. It told of how top executives from Univision, or Univision, the country's largest Spanish-language TV network, had a warm visit with former President Donald Trump, now the leading Republican presidential candidate, at his resort home in Mar-a-Lago. During that get-together, Trump gave Univision an interview that critics say was softball at best. Here's Trump making news in that interview by suggesting that if he becomes president again, he'd be willing to order prosecutions of his political opponents, as he falsely claimed President Biden is doing to him now. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly, that would be, you know, they would be out of business. 
they'd be out. They'd be out of the election. Univision, which is headquartered here in Doral, is undoubtedly a well-respected news outlet. Its journalists, like anchor Jorge Ramos, are known for confronting leaders on both the right and the left. But the Post piece has sparked widespread speculation that the network may be going, shall we say, Trumpista, Fox News and Espanol. And that's got Democrats wringing their hands because the party has been losing Latino voters in droves lately, especially here in South Florida. Should they be worried, or are the media exaggerating this media story? Joining me now is Fernan Amandi. He heads the polling and communications firm Ben Dixon and Amandi here in Miami, and few people follow Latino voters, Latino media, and the Democratic Party as closely and expertly as he does. Fernan, good to have you on. Tim, a pleasure to be here with you. I guess we should start here by reminding folks that not so long ago, things were pretty frosty between Trump and Univision, right? And, and a lot of that had to do with Jorge Ramos confronting then-presidential candidate Trump in 2016 about his immigration rhetoric. That is precisely correct. I mean, Trump, as we all know, has taken a very frosty attitude towards all legitimate and mainstream media, for example, calling them the enemy of the people. But he seemed to have his harshest... Uh, comments and insults for Univision and, as you mentioned, Jorge Ramos, dating back to when he came down that famous time from the Golden Escalator and called Mexican immigrants rapists and murderers. Right. So so given that backstory, should we really look at this new Univision approach to Trump as favoring the former president or simply making the relationship less adversarial? Well, look, I mean, I think it, it remains to be seen is open. It is an open and pregnant question you asked him because that interview that was broadcast the other night on Univision, right? This this month, uh-huh. that interview that was broadcast this month on Univ on Univision is exactly the sort of interview that you would expect to see in Cuba, communist Cuba, in Venezuela under the Maduro and Chavez regime. What was problematic of the interview was not so much that it occurred. One would expect any news organization to interview the leading contender for president of the main one of the main political parties in the United States. But sure. it's, as you alluded to earlier, not a softball interview. That was, in essence, a monologue for Trump, where he was served up underhand softball-style questions for him to just take batting practice off of. But the, big, the was, biggest problem, though, seemed to be there was just no pushback on some of the, well, lies. Is that the main problem? There just wasn't really any pushback on that sort of thing? It was a disqualifying interview for the person that conducted it, Enrique Acevedo, who was not brought in under Univision auspices. Uh, Jorge Ramos, Leon Krause, Elia Calderon would have been the natural people to have conducted that interview. They actually brought him in from Mexico, Televisa, where he works right. in Mexico, mm-hmm. to conduct the interview. And there was no pushback whatsoever, uh, not just in, in, in the face of the lies that Trump offered repeatedly, but frankly, the news that he made uh, in that interview, very draconian news, where he talked about weaponizing the Department of Justice to go after political opponents. It was a shameful interview. But this is where we should point out that Enrique Acevedo is not really, as you point out, a Univision journalist. He's with the Mexican network Televisa, which recently merged with Univision. And Fernan, am I right in suggesting that right there we have one of the big reasons Univision seems to be getting chummier with Donald Trump? No, no question at all. I mean, had there been even a fig's leaf amount of pushback One could have said, well, you know, it wasn't what one would have hoped for with an interview of that caliber with someone like Trump. 
But the fact that there was nothing, it looked like a paid infomercial for the Trump campaign that was heavily promoted for three days on the network in every single program with promos and banners. The day after they did a bunch of behind the scenes stuff. One can only walk away, not just scratching your head, but disturbed at whether or not the implications are that this is a trend that Univision is becoming Fox News in Espanol. But, but what I'm also getting at is remind us of Televisa's long history in Mexico of cozying up to power, which, which I myself watch up close during my decade as a correspondent there. Well, there's no question that the, the editorial line that Televisa historically has taken in Mexico was one that was, shall we say, chummier with the government in power than one would expect, certainly here in the United States. The media in Mexico at the Televisa level was not necessarily seen as questioning and calling truth to power, but one that was more on the official line of things, right. which was a departure from what Univision has always done historically here in the United States. Right. But Univision sources I've spoken with this week also stress that this is about ad revenue, meaning the big trove of Republican Party and Trump campaign spending that the financially struggling Univision network needs in this upcoming election cycle. Is is that true, do you think? But but if it is, does Univision really need to compromise its editorial integrity to get it? I think there is some truth, and I think it was wise for Univision to show that there is a willingness to sit down and give the Trump campaign the opportunity to express their thoughts. Where it becomes a little bit more indefensible, in my judgment at least, Tim, is when you have the type of reaction that we saw in that interview, where, as we've said, no pushback, a forum for Trump to speak uninterrupted with lies. He talked about creating uh, almost concentration-style camps to round up immigrants around the United States, deport them. He compared them to Hannibal Lecter from The Silence of the Lambs. You cannot sell your soul simply in search of ad revenue. Now, and that's what the interview looked like. We should point out that Acevedo's and Univision's explanation of this was that they wanted to just let Trump announce, uh, let's, let's say, his platform, that they didn't want to try to uh, bring in their own editorial viewpoint. Um, it, was that explanation, do you think, enough on their Absolutely part? Absolutely not, because it was a total departure from the style of interviews they've conducted in the past with even Democratic candidates for president. Uh, Univision is not a place where anyone, all you have to do is ask Joe Biden, Barack Obama, where mm -hmm. one sits down and expects a softball interview, the likes of which Trump had earlier this month. Right. It's always been hard-hitting questions that have made those in power even uncomfortable. Uh, and that standard was completely absent in the interview with Trump that Enrique Acevedo conducted. We already saw one big exit from Univision last week. Late night news anchor Leon Krause resigned from the network. He gave no reason for his departure, but a lot of people are presuming it had to do with this perception that Univision is going soft on Trump. Are you expecting to see more folks like Krause leave? Well, I mean, it's a very difficult decision, isn't it? Isn't it the ultimate integrity test for you as a journalist, Tim, if you were in that position for anybody who practices the profession, when they see something so blatant happen, but at the same time recognizing that resigning means it's a sacrificing of a job, potentially even in some cases a career in a time when we know the economy while improving is still difficult for a lot. So I think that's the gut check question every person inside of Univision is asking themselves. All right. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Univision Network's warmer relationship with Donald Trump and what that means for the cooler relationship between Latino voters and the Democratic Party.
So, Fernand, let's pivot a little here and look at how this all affects that struggle the Democrats are having with Latinos, especially here in South Florida. I mean, just last week, we watched Hialeah, one of the largest Cuban and Latino enclaves in Miami-Dade County, name a street for Donald Trump. Spanish language radio here is already pro-Trump. If, if the country's largest Spanish language TV network goes Trumpista, can President Biden expect an even more reduced share of Latino votes next year? Uh, sadly, I think that is the case, unfortunately, because again, and I've been very clear on this throughout the decades, I don't think I've been proven wrong yet, Tim. There is no danger that President Biden is going to lose the Hispanic vote in 2024 if he runs against Donald Trump. The danger, however, is that in managing the margins, winning by only uh, 20 points instead of 30 or 10 points instead of 35 could very well mean the difference between carrying states mm -hmm. like Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, critical swing states and battleground states where the Hispanic vote has proven to be the swing vote. Right. If those margins change, it could very well cost Biden the presidency. But one question, big question I have is, Fernand, if if Univision is cozying up to Trump, does that really play well with the Latino communities outside Florida who, who make up most of the network's audience, especially the Mexican-American community in places like California who aren't exactly fans of Trump's demonization of immigrants, for example? Well, that's the very problem with the cozying up question. Univision and, and Telemundo, for that matter, are held in such high regard by the Hispanic community, especially the foreign-born, Spanish-dominant, Hispanic community in the United States, that anything that looks like the normalization of an abnormal a person like Donald Trump, I think could impact the perceptions because they're leveraging and trading on that 40, 50 years of trust built up in the network and saying, well, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe he is okay. And I think, sadly, that could have consequences for some voters. But even outside Florida, Biden and the Democrats are losing ground with Latinos, as we've just mentioned. Fernand, remind us what the Democrats are doing wrong in your estimation and what Trump and the Republicans are doing right with that pivotal voter block of Latinos to the extent that the country's largest Spanish language network may well feel now that it, is, it, is, it has to give Trump more favorable coverage. Well, first and foremost, I think it has to be said, there is no question that in terms of policy and quality of life changes that the government has implemented through the work of the government, there's no question that Biden and the Democratic Party has done more for Hispanics, whether it's on health care, the economy, education, infrastructure, job creation. There's no question they've done a better job. Where I think the Trump campaigns and the Republicans have been much more aggressive is in the actual campaign engagement. Take a look at a state like Florida where they have run, in essence, Tim, a permanent campaign, love court press, full court press of the Hispanic vote dating back to 2016. You've seen that largely absent by the Biden campaign and the Democrats. You export that campaign style to other states, the permanent campaign apparatus by Republicans and Republican-affiliated groups like the Libre Initiative. That's where you start to see that weakening of the margins if the Biden campaign isn't as aggressive or even more so in trying to hold the line with their Hispanic support. Right, but, but to be fair to the Republican Party, though, Fernand, aren't they doing more outside of just, you know, election activities? I mean, South Florida Latinos, particularly Cubans here, would say, well, look how tough Trump was on, on Cuba and Venezuela when he was president. That also tends to draw um, more Latinos into the Republican fold, that kind of policy work on the part of the Republicans, not just election work, no? 
Uh, from what I understand, the Maduro regime survived the four years of the Trump presidency. <laughs> well, true. Yeah. And then on top of that, it wasn't the Trump administration that offered temporary protected status to Venezuelans seeking asylum in this country. That was the Biden administration. If anything, the, the Trump administration tried to stop that initiative from happening. So I'm not sure that that's even a fair comparison. Mm -hmm. Well, finally, Fernand, weren't the Democrats supposed to be fighting back against this trend here in Miami? Last year, a bipartisan but largely liberal investment group purchased two conservative Spanish language radio stations, including the notoriously pro-Republican Radio Mambi. What has come of, so of that so far? Well, it could be that I'm wrong. It could be that I'm just the one guy not seeing it, but I haven't really seen anything change since the consequences of what happened in the 2016, 2018, and 2020 and 2022 elections in Florida that have gotten progressively worse for Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party. So what then do you expect to see from Univision going forward? I mean, are are you convinced at this point that they they are moving in the direction of, as I said, just sort of becoming Fox News and Espanol? Or is, is that an exaggeration? What do you really see as we're from Univision as we're moving into 2024? Well, again, it's not an exaggeration to say that based on what we saw in the Enrique Acevedo interview with Donald Trump. If that is the new trend going forward and the coverage continues to go in that direction, then I think you can confidently say it's becoming a Fox News in Espanol. The other thing we learned is that Univision came up with this uh, explanation to stop running advertising that the Biden campaign had promised to, to pay for and put in right. uh, at the same time of the Trump interview with this, you know, description that had never really existed before, that they don't run ads during candidate interviews, which has never happened before. So those are all warning signs. But if in response to this pushback, which I think has been appropriate, Univision executives realize and course correct, then I think we could say it would have been a one-off. All right. Fernand Amandi heads the Miami polling and communications firm Ben Dixon and Amandi. Fernand, many thanks as always. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Tim, for the opportunity. Finally on the roundup, a Santa Claus suit as in lawsuit. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Why? Santa Claus is coming to town. Yeah, you better watch out. This month, the Miami Holiday theme park Santa's Enchanted Forest filed a suit against a newer park called Christmas Wonderland and Miami-Dade County. The issue? Three years ago, Miami-Dade did not renew the lease for Santa's Enchanted Forest at Tropical Park, where the attraction had been based for 37 years. But this year, the county said it would let Christmas Wonderland use Tropical Park, and that upset Santa, or his Enchanted Forest. Santa's Enchanted Forest argued that use of Tropical Park was supposed to be competitively awarded by the county. But a judge dismissed Santa's motion to block Wonderland's installment at Tropical Park, and so Christmas Wonderland opened there last week. Still, Santa's Enchanted Forest has a new home at Northwest 87th Avenue and 74th Street. So we've got twice the Christmas carnival now. It's all a good reminder that in Miami, we can make even Christmas not just wondrous, but litigious. 
That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.